And we're going to Genesis chapter 2 this morning and verses 18 through 25. So uh, after you found Genesis, stand. Let's read it together and uh, beginning there in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to, call, to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again today that we can come and gather in your name. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have given us uh, your truth from the very beginning. Uh, you have revealed to us your plan, your design uh, for the home, for the family, for marriage. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us to understand what you uh, desire for us. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would follow the pattern that is given in your word. And Lord, we pray that as we do, you would bless our homes and bless our families, that we can have all that uh, you desire. And Lord, we pray that we would be courageous in that, especially in a day and time when uh, many of these principles are not popular. And Lord, we pray that we would uh, still be committed as your people to do it your way. Lord, we pray uh, this morning as we observe the Lord's Supper uh, together as a family that our hearts would be right before you. And Lord, that you would uh, be with every aspect of our worship today, our giving, our singing, our uh, study of your word uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper, everything that we do and say in this place would be pleasing in your sight and that you would uh, use it for our benefit and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. No series on the family would be complete without a message on the foundation that was laid by God for its existence and blessing. In fact, a person's entire perspective on the family hinges on whether or not or not they believe that it was established by God. If it is, in fact, established by God, as the Bible declares, then he is the one who determines what it is to be and how it is to function. And we have all kinds of new versions of family today but only God can say if what we call a family is truly a family. Marriage between a man and a woman is God's design. 
He is the one who established it. He is the only one who can speak authoritatively as to how it should be. If we really want to know how marriage can be the best that it is intended, we have to go to God's Word. And you know, you and I live in a day in which there is much available to supposedly enrich our marriages and families. We have all kinds of books and seminars and websites and blogs and other uh, resources, and yet the family seems to be floundering as never before. There seems to be uh, so many experts out there telling us what we need to do to have a fulfilled family life, and yet we continue to struggle to make it what it was meant to be. We are in desperate need to go back to the source of the family, to God's design. And we need to turn to the one who established the family to begin with and hear what he has to say. We need to go all the way back to creation, to the very first marriage, and to see how God designed it and what he intends for it. And in the first three or four chapters of Genesis, we see the foundation of the family. What God did at the beginning of the world determines his plan for marriage and the family. And listen, our fallen world has been trying to redefine the family for centuries, but it will only result in fulfillment and blessing when we do it God's way. And part of the creation account deals with the entrance of sin into the world. And sin, of course, has marred everything that God created as, as that which is good. But we can still experience the family as God originally intended it if we follow his plan. And we know that the family is very important to God as the foundation of human society, because you don't go two chapters into the very first book of the Bible before you come to the very first marriage in history. And we're going to go look at that first marriage this morning. And by the way, there has never been a marriage quite like that first one. This was a very unique marriage as God established the home. For one thing, there were no in-laws to deal with. I mean, there was no comparing one's spouse with parents, right? Eve couldn't run home to mama if things didn't go well around the house. There was no such thing as parental interference because there were no parents. And yet, even though this first marriage was unique in some ways... God intends for us to learn from it what his desire is for marriage and the family. And what we must understand is that the success in marriage goes back to what is established right here in Genesis. And that is the key to a happy home and a blessed family. You and I will never be happy and fulfilled until we do things God's way. 
We will never experience the family the way God designed it if we fail to follow the principles that he has given us in his word beginning right here in the book of Genesis. God is the master designer. He is the one who created the family. And even though it may appear that the family is on shaky grounds in our day and time, it will never go out of style because God has established it as the greatest and the most fulfilling relationship on earth. So with that introduction, I want us to go now into the first few chapters of Genesis, back to the establishment of marriage and the family, and note some very important principles that God has given us in His Word. And of course, as we go through this series, we will see what the rest of Scripture has to say about the family, in particular what Paul has to say in the New Testament. But we're laying the foundation here. And here in Genesis, we see three main truths. We see the start of family composition. We see the source of family conflict. And we see the solution to family contention. And that's our outline this morning. We begin with the start of family composition. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, we have God's very first words about men and women. Notice what it says there, Genesis 1:27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Wait a minute. You mean there's a difference between male and female? You mean God created the sexes to be different? Of course he did. Only fools can't see that. Only in our current day of reprobate thinking are people confused about that. It's not that difficult, folks, to tell the difference between a male and a female. This is God's design. We should never blur that. But go on to verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, most men like this verse because it's all about hunting and fishing. But notice, first of all, that both the man and the woman were created equally in the image of God. As persons, as human beings, in standing and value and worth, we are completely equal. And what this teaches us is that God originally created men and women to be co-regents. They were to rule the earth together as a team They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As a team, they were to subdue the animals, etc. And notice that originally there was no animosity. There was no struggle or fighting. There was nothing but perfect unity, and that is how God designed marriage to be. Of course, there 
are no perfect human marriages because there are no perfect human beings. But I believe we see here the Lord's original intent. God created marriage as a special union between a man and a woman. He created it to be the absolute best relationship that humans can have with another human. That's God's design. But there's more here, because in chapter 2, we find what you could call a close-up of what God did in the establishment of marriage and family life. Chapter 1 states it in kind of a capsulized form, but chapter 2 gives us some details. So turn over to chapter 2 for just a moment. Look at chapter 2, and let's pick it up in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is the first thing in God's creation the Bible says is not good. And if you go back to the previous chapter, you see where everything God created, he declared to be good. The heavens, the earth, the stars, the planets, the animals, everything was good. But here we're told there was one thing that was not good. It was not good for the man to be alone. And of course, technically, he was not really alone because he walked with God and he had all the animals around him, but he had no human companionship. So God said, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, women have always chafed at that word helper but the hebrew word means one who supports or better yet one who complements or completes she is one whom god specifically created to take care of adam's aloneness this doesn't mean at all that the wife is to be subservient to the husband or that she is simply to be a helper in the sense of being a gopher or one who who uh, is at his beck and call all the time. No, this means she completes him. She compliments him. She makes up for his areas of weakness. This is really talking about the fact that a husband and a wife are better and stronger together than they are apart. And you know, us guys usually don't like to admit that we ever need any kind of help, but the truth of the matter is we need a lot of help. We really do. And God's design for marriage is that the woman comes alongside the man and together they are greater than they are apart. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, biblically speaking, the woman is the only person in the world that can help a man be all God wants him to be. As Gary Ezzo put it, God did not make a helper for Adam in the sense of a hired hand, but as a complement, one who would complete the man in every way. And please understand The woman was no afterthought in the mind of God. She was not a footnote at the bottom of the creation page. 
She was in God's plan all along. In fact, I heard someone say one time that after God created man, he said to himself, I think I can do better than that, and he created the woman. Now, of course, that's said in jest because God always does everything perfectly. But the point is, the woman became the completer for the man. And that was always God's divine plan. But before she was created, Adam didn't even know he was alone. I mean, after all, you can't miss what you've never had, right? It never bothered Adam that he didn't have a date on Saturday night because nobody had a date on Saturday night. He had no idea what he was missing out on. And he, because he had no idea that there could be such thing as a helper suitable for him. And that's why verses 19 and 20 give us what many have called the principle of elephants, giraffes, and zebras. Look at verse 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. Stop right there. Why is this here at this point? Why did God parade all the animals in front of Adam and have him give them names? Well, he did it for a specific reason. Look at the last part of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. God deliberately awakened in Adam a sense of aloneness and a sense of need. By parading all these animals before him, Adam became aware of his need for companionship and completion. He came to realize his need for wife. Now, of course, I'm sure Adam had a thoroughly fascinating time naming all the animals. But as he does this, he begins to notice something. All the animals come in pairs. He notices there's a Mr. Elephant and a Mrs. Elephant. There's a Mr. Giraffe and a Mrs. Giraffe. There's a Mr. Zebra and a Mrs. Zebra. And suddenly... There was a gnawing in his stomach and a twang in his heart, and he suddenly realized there's no Mrs. Adam. All the animals have a mate, but he doesn't. And so for the very first time, Adam felt his aloneness. And for the very first time, he came to understand that he was not complete, that he was missing something very important. God intentionally created this desire in him for a mate. Now listen, that is still God's design for marriage. It is intended by God to fulfill us like no other relationship on this earth. God made sure that Adam came to the firm conclusion that there was no other creature on earth that could complete him and complement him like the woman. 
In other words, God wanted Adam and every generation after him to know that only marriage between a man and a woman can meet the deepest needs for intimacy and cure aloneness. This is God's design. Well, I need to speed up here just a little bit, but verses 21 and 22 give the account of how God fashioned the woman from the rib of Adam. This is, of course, the first recorded surgery in the Bible. And maybe you heard about the little boy who was taught this in Sunday school. That afternoon, he was running on the playground when he suddenly grabbed his side because it was hurting because he'd been running so hard. And he said, oh, I think I'm going to have a wife. Well, Adam really did have a wife that way. And I think it is significant that God chose to fashion the woman from the rib of Adam. Matthew Henry observes, Eve was made by God not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arms to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. By the way, when God made all the other creatures, including man, he just made them. But when he made the woman, he fashioned her. He uses an entirely different word here. This Hebrew word means to rebuild, or more precisely, to rebuild in such a way as to cause to flourish. What flourished when God created the woman? Well, the man did. The creation did. All the earth did. Human history did. And what is the application for us? God wants us to flourish in marriage and in the home. His design is for both the man and the woman to be better as a result of the marriage union. And marriage is intended by God to cause the rest of creation to flourish because this is the foundational relationship upon which everything else in society is built. By the way, notice at this point there were no children present. Adam and Eve were told that they were to multiply and fill the earth, but they were a complete family before children ever entered the picture. Now, this is important to understand for a couple of reasons. First, we need to realize that a husband and a wife are complete with or without children. Children are not necessary for the kind of fulfilling relationship that God created for the man and the woman from the beginning. Of course, children are a welcome addition in the family, but they are not necessary to fill the aloneness experienced by mankind. Children are a result of that completed relationship, but they're not necessary in order to achieve fulfillment in marriage. In other words, marriage is the first and primary human relationship upon which 
All other human relationships are built. And a married couple is a family whether there are children present or not. There is an important application that comes from this realization, and that is we must avoid the danger of embracing a child-centered family. And you know what I'm talking about. We've all seen it in our society. Parents allow the children to become the center of the home. The kids call all the shots. Everything is all about the kids. Listen, that is not only destructive to a marriage. It is also harmful to the kids. A child-centered home causes the child to become self-centered and self-focused to such a degree that they will be ruined by that. And he will end up becoming completely consumed with his own wants to such a degree that no one will want to be around him anymore. And parents, you are creating a real problem for your children when you do that. Let your children know that they are a welcome part of the family, but don't make them the center of the family. Don't let them rule the roost, please, for their own good and for yours. Listen, please understand, the most important thing that you can ever do for your children is to give priority to your marriage. The more you love your spouse and make it obvious to your children that he or she comes first, the better off your children will be. Don't let your family revolve around your children, but make sure you give priority to your marriage. That is a relationship that must be at the top apart from your relationship with God. Of course, children need to know they're loved, that they are a welcomed part of the family, but they're not the center of the family. Having a child-centered family is a big mistake that you will regret. One author wrote this. He said, you can spend 24 hours a day with your children and never be a better father or mother than what you are as a husband or a wife. And think about this for a minute. The parent-child relationship, as precious as it is, will always be temporary. On the other hand, the husband-wife relationship is meant to be permanent. Those children will one day leave the home. And when they do, you will find yourself an empty nester. That's why the greatest investment must be in your marriage. Because when your kids are grown, it will just be the two of you. And that is why no other relationship should ever supersede your marriage. Well, look at verse 23. Here's how Adam described this experience. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. If Adam was trying to be romantic here, he flunked. I mean, just try saying that to your wife sometime. It sounds like he's thinking of anatomy. This is not very romantic at all. 
But even though it is not good poetry, it is great theology. This really is a Hebrew expletive. What he's saying here is roughly hot diggity dog. This is an expression of excitement and joy. He's saying, this is the one I've been looking for. She is human, just like me. She is made in the image of God, just like I am. She is the perfect mate. Well, in verse 24, we see the inauguration of the marriage where the two literally become one flesh. You see, what really happens at a a wedding is two funerals. The two cease to be independent persons and become one flesh. Look at verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we could spend time on the leaving part, which is very important. We could talk about the cleaving part. But the point I'm making this morning is that marriage is a divinely ordained institution. Marriage came before the church and even before human government. It is truly the basic foundational unit of human society. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just end the story right here? You know, just a wonderful thing. God created marriage. We know it doesn't end here. Something awful happens in chapter 3. So we need to move on to the source of family conflict. Of course, it would be an oversimplification to say that sin is the source of conflict in the home. Ultimately, sin that resulted from the fall has brought destruction and death to really every area of life. But in the case of the family, it goes even deeper than that. We cannot properly understand why it is so difficult to make a marriage work unless we have a good grasp of the curse that God placed on the man and the woman after the fall. And although there were different roles and responsibilities in the marriage relationship, even before the fall, after the fall, it has become difficult indeed to maintain oneness and harmony in marriage because of the curse and its effects on the home. And just as childbirth suddenly became a painful experience and earning a living became a struggle, so maintaining the kind of marriage relationship that God has designed marriage to be became a great challenge, to say the least. Now, what, what was this curse? Well, we read about it in verse 16 of chapter 3. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, you say, which part is worse, the pain in childbirth or the husband ruling? Listen, it is not pleasant for men or for women to try to deal with the effects of the curse. But we must understand it if we ever hope to overcome it 
and to have the kind of marriage that God desires and that we desire. So what is this curse all about? For our purpose this morning, the part that we need to understand is the last part that says, Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And what we need to understand is that both the feminist movement and the male chauvinist movement began right here. To understand the meaning of this phrase, let's first look at what it does not mean. Many commentators say that this is this simply means that it's normal for a wife to have a strong sexual and psychological dependence on her husband, and it's very normal for her to desire the man and for the man to rule over the woman. But folks, that can't be the interpretation for three main reasons. Number one, sexually, in most cases, the man has a much stronger desire for his wife than she does for him. So that interpretation is not true in a practical sense. Second, historically, women have never loved their role of submission to their husbands. There is not a single period of history where women were not chafing under male authority, including, of course, today. Third, if this was just normal desire, then this would not be a curse, would it? Whatever is being described here has to be addressing something that is different after the curse than it was before it. So what does this phrase mean? The word for rule is the Hebrew word masal. It means to reign over. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word kathistomai is used, which means to install in an office or to elevate to an official position. It's used in the New Testament, the appointment of elders, for example. So what is this part of the curse all about? It is saying that whereas before the fall, the man and the woman ruled together as co-regents, now, after the fall, there would be a change of authority. God said, in essence, I'm going to install the man over the woman in terms of position. Now, the other term that we need to understand here is the word desire. This word is used only one other time in the Pentateuch, 15 verses later in Genesis 4 and verse 7. The word means to compel, to urge, to seek to control. So let's see how it's used in Genesis 4, 7. This is, of course, in the context of God speaking to Cain about the evil desire in his heart to kill his brother and that his countenance had fallen as a result. And God said to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. 
Now, folks, this is the very same word used in the very same grammatical structure. Whatever it means in chapter 4, verse 7, it means the same thing in chapter 3, verse 16. So how should we interpret Genesis 3.16? It really means something like this. To the woman, he said, your desire will be to control your husband, but he must rule over you. Now, there are a lot of people who don't like that. But, folks, that is the proper interpretation of this text. And listen, if you want to know why marriage is tough, it is because there has been a struggle to accept our God-given roles from that day forward. This is why we have women's liberation movements. This is why we have male oppression and abuse. It all started right here. But you see, we really shouldn't expect anything different from the world because we've been living with the results of the curse from that day forward. Sin isolates us from God. Sin isolates us from each other. And you know, every time a husband and wife come into my office on the brink of divorce, it is always because of what sin has done to their relationship. It is always a result of the curse of sin. In the words of the old country preacher, sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to, to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. That is so true, isn't it? Very few people will ever argue that there is pain in childbirth. Few people will argue that weeds will take over your garden if you neglect it. But we have a hard time seeing that this is just as much a part of the curse as that is. And that is why there is so much difficulty in marriage. I heard someone say one time, the difference between courtship and marriage is the difference between the pictures in the seed catalog and what actually comes up. And that is true so often. Someone wisely observed that there are only two causes of unhappy marriages, men and women. Well, before we go out of here in a state of despair, I want to move quickly to the last point, which is the solution to family contention. Jesus Christ is the answer to conflict in marriage brought on by the effects of the curse. Now, we need to be careful here to not say that Jesus has removed the curse. I heard a very respected pastor one time make that statement that is misleading all the aspects of the curse are still intact and will not be removed until christ comes again but in christ when we are controlled by his holy spirit we husbands can learn to love our wives as christ loved the church and wives 
can learn to submit to the loving leadership of their husbands just as he has commanded. That doesn't come naturally to the flesh. But it only comes as we are walking by the Spirit, only under the Spirit's control. This is, though, possible for believers in Jesus Christ. And listen, folks, there may be some here this morning who are thinking, Pastor, my marriage is in such trouble, I don't think it can be fixed. And for some of you, solving the problems in your marriage right now and resolving the issues that have developed oftentimes over many, many years is a lot like trying to unscramble an egg. And I understand that. But you need to take your life as it is right now. And you need to turn it over to Jesus Christ. And you need to ask Him to help you fix your marriage. You can't do it alone, but He can do it through you. And folks, it's only when we accept and begin to practice His pattern for marriage and the family that we will find the fulfillment that He intends. Now, folks, we can choose to do otherwise, but we will always pay the price in our marriages and in our homes. It is the inevitable curse of sin that brings that about. And you know, the devil knows that if he can wreck our marriages, that he can wreck our homes. And if he can do that, he can destroy our witness and he can wreck our churches and he can ultimately wreck our nation. So he has leveled his fiercest darts and his heaviest artillery against the family. The devil did his best to destroy the first family, and he will do anything he can to destroy yours as well. But you don't have to be a casualty. The devil may be the greatest home wrecker, but Jesus Christ is the greatest home builder. Will you build your marriage and your family on him? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that as we think about these foundational issues, that you would help us to be committed to them. And Lord, it doesn't really matter what our society says, what our world says. You've given us your blueprint. You've given us your truth. Help us to stand firm on it. And Lord, we we want the best. We want the best marriages. We want the best homes and families. And Lord, we know wisdom tells us that it comes from following your word. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us to have the courage to do that today. Lord, again, as always, we pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they would come to know him today. But Lord, those of us who are believers, those of us who are followers of Christ, help us to have the kind of families that you want us to have. Because when we do that, your name is glorified. You receive glory. So, Lord, that's our ultimate goal. And, Lord, we pray you would bless us with that today. Help us respond according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.